are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are the addiction doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to The Addiction Files. We are back with another in our series on um, substance use disorders and mental health. And it is fantastic. We have Dr. Javier Ballester, who's joining us to discuss bipolar disorder and substance use disorder. So he's a fantastic guest and very knowledgeable. And so we are thrilled that he has been willing to come back and talk to us about this subject. So I'm going to turn it over to Paula, who's going to introduce him, even though he needs no introduction. Okay, yeah, Dr. Ballester has been on our podcast two times before, so you can tune in and listen to his previous episodes, one on methamphetamine, fentanyl, the other one on uh, neurobiology of addiction. Uh, but Dr. Ballester was born in Spain in a little town in the north called Zamora, but he grew up in the middle south in another small town called Cuidad Real. When he was 18 years old, he moved to Madrid, where he completed his medical school and his residency in psychiatry. After that, he got a scholarship from a foundation called Koplovitz and spent three years in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, studying child and adolescent psychiatry. He decided to stay here in the U.S. despite knowing that he would need to repeat his residency. And he spent one year in Brooklyn for his internship and then moved to Connecticut, where he completed his residency again in psychiatry at Yale and then did an addiction psychiatry fellowship. Javier moved to Salt Lake City to work at the University of Utah. He became board certified in addiction medicine and is currently at the VA healthcare system where he works in the substance abuse rehabilitation residential treatment program, which is otherwise known as SARTEP. He is the past president of the Utah chapter of ASAM here in Utah and belongs to the Science Initiative Subcommittee of ASAM. His current interests include neuromodulation techniques for the treatment of methamphetamine use disorder and neuroimaging in addiction. So we're very happy and lucky to have Dr. Ballister with us again tonight, talking about an area that he is um, definitely an expert. So we're talking about bipolar disorder tonight. Thank you, Paula and Darlene. It's a pleasure being here. Um, this is my third time being here, and I am very excited, very thrilled to be here and to talk about bipolar disorder. I was uh, talking to one of my colleagues uh, a few days ago, uh, when I told him that I was going to be talking in this podcast, and and I and I told him that basically for me bipolar disorder is the most uh, fun uh, disorder to treat because it has it all. It has depression, it has mania, it has psychosis, it has substance use, uh, it has all of the aspects. It has controversies, difficulties with diagnosis, difficulties with treatment. Uh, a lot of comorbidities, medical and other medical psychiatric comorbidities, confusion with personality or not. So it has it, it has it all in psychiatry. So I think that uh, bipolar disorder is, has always been one of my most interesting um, areas to, um, um, to work on. You couldn't say it better. That is a fantastic introduction. So can you just explain to us what define bipolar? So for our listeners, what are the different types? How do we recognize and diagnose this? So yeah, bipolar disorder is a, a mood disorder. And 
although in the in Europe is is better known as an affective disorder. There is a difference here in between yeah. the US and Europe between what is considered an affective of what is considered a mood disorder. And without getting into details there, uh, is one of the most classic uh, divisions of psychiatry already back at the beginning of the 20th century, at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century with Kreppelin, when he when he basically uh, made a division and said that uh, not all of the uh, psychoses are the same, and there is a psychosis that can be explained by a, a mood disorder, which is what he called manic depressive illness, and there is another type of psychosis that can be explained by something different that he called at that time dementia precox. So that is already happening uh, back at uh, the beginning of the of the 20th century in Germany, and um, and that has been since then one of the major branches of, of psychiatry, what we consider a severe mental illness. And there has been um, differences in in um, throughout the. Uh, evolution of the um, um, DSM, there has been different classifications of what is considered or not bipolar disorder. But at this point, based on the DSM-5, bipolar disorder um, com uh, bipolar disorder has can be divided into different types, into what we call bipolar type 1, that involves uh, episodes of uh, mania, and which is the classic descriptions of a manic episode. Uh, bipolar type Two, which involves um, a combination of hypomanic episodes and depressive episodes. You need to have both in order to diagnose bipolar type 2. And then what uh, we called cyclothymic, cyclothymia or cyclothymic disorder, which is a different form where uh, people need to have a cup, at least a two-year duration of episodes that do not fill the full criteria of hypomania or depression, but they they are characterized by frequent changes in mood of uh, hypomania, but not really a, a complete hypomanic episode and depressive episodes that do not fill the whole the whole uh, diagnosis of uh, depression. And then the DSM uh, distinguishes the other bipolar and related disorders. That's what we might consider substance-induced bipolar disorder or bipolar disorder due to another general medical condition. And then we also identify the unspecified bipolar and related disorders, which is um, when we don't have enough data still, perhaps, to diagnose a bipolar disorder, we, we think that there is a, a already a mood disorder there, but we don't know, we don't have enough data yet because it requires further characterization or further follow-up. So those are the main classifications of uh, bipolar disorder. That's, that's really helpful, like Javier, because I get that frequently patients will come to us and they dispute their diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So th they'll come in and they'll have all of these different diagnoses and They'll say, well, someone's told me that they're, I'm bipolar, but I don't agree with that. So it is acceptable, and that is a DSM-5 diagnosis to say that this is maybe an unspecified, and you can use that as a working diagnosis while you work with the patient and monitor. And then you could reasonably still treat them and treat what symptoms you're seeing. Is, is that reasonable and acceptable? That's right. Yeah, that's very acceptable. And 
For example, if you have someone who is presenting uh, classical symptoms of mania, but there is uh, substance use on board, and you don't have still enough data to see if this is a pure bipolar disorder or if it is more a substance-induced bipolar disorder, that's when you can use the specifier, uh, or sorry, more than the specifier, you can use the unspecified bipolar and related disorder because you just need more information. And bipolar disorder is one of these disorders where collateral information or information from family and from friends is very important because um, a lot of times, especially when some people, when the, when patients uh, are in a manic episode, normally um, it could happen that the insight into the disorder or the insight into the disease at that time is very impaired. So mm -hmm. it might be the case that people do not remember well or people never really agreed uh, into the diagnosis and you need to have, so that's in one side, that, that's an impairment in, in, in the uh, realization of the disease. But there is also other uh, another challenge to, to diagnose, which is sometimes uh, people have difficulties also knowing if they are dealing through more uh, hypomania or more milder forms of mania, because uh, these are periods where people might feel that they have more productivity, they feel good, they don't feel really impaired. And normally changes in behavior are perceived by others that they uh, realize that they, that you know the, the, the person is not uh, sleeping well, is, is having too much energy, they talk too fast, they are not, they have a lot of ideas normally they would not have and they and then they can see a difference between those periods and periods of depression. Depression on the other side, I think that is what we call is so uh, ego dystonic is so is it feels so bad that I, that uh, that people normally realize that they have a depressive episode. Some people do remember very well when they are feeling depressed. Hey Javier, so is there a, a DSM definition um, or differentiation between mania and hypomania? Just for people, like what is the distinction other than this kind of clinical idea that one is more severe or intense than another? Yeah, so the really the only uh, uh, different differentiations between hypomania and mania is uh, uh, there are two. One is the uh, is a longitudinal um, uh, period. You need to have at least four days of a period of uh, functioning in a manic or a hypomanic episode in order to give a diagnosis of hypomania, and and but less than seven days. However, if you have an episode of seven days or more of these symptoms, then you can fully say that that person has mania. So it, there is a temporal definition, but it's also a functional definition in the sense that you might only have one or two days of these symptoms. But if those symptoms are so severe that they require a hospitalization, then you already have enough data to say that that person has bipolar type one because of the serious uh, repercussions in their in their lives. Also, if that person has psychosis, uh, if you already have psychosis, that is already considered to as belonging to uh, mania. Okay, thank you. That's really helpful. What I wanted to um, talk to is a little bit about um, epidemiology. If uh, if if you don't mind, I think it's important. Yes. For yeah. us to know, like, how frequent is this? So we have data from different uh, different studies and different sources. And the data that I got most recently is from NIH. And NIH, uh, uh, in their website, 
um, states that the, 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 the lifetime prevalence of bipolar disorder in the U.S. is a little bit, is 4.4, a little bit more than 4% of the general population. Uh, that is very interesting because that is a prevalence that is double than in the rest part of that in the rest of the world, and I, we still don't know why is that. We don't know if it is because uh, people uh, we use different different. This is more a DSM based uh, diagnosis versus a more um, uh, diagnosis based on the ICD, which is the the classification system from the WHO. So we don't know if that is because of that. But um, I have heard other. I, I have heard some experts in the area talking that perhaps there is something in the U.S. that required a lot, when when a lot of immigrants came here to the U.S. You already have to have some hyperthymic temperament in order to emigrate and to try to uh, look for a different life in another in another part of the world. So it might also be related that there was kind of like a natural selection or artificial selection, whatever we want to call, of people from the U.S. that might explain that. They have higher. Uh, this is only a hypothesis, but it's very interesting when I or risky, yeah. non-risky aversion to do that. That that can be very a little bit linked to what we call the the hyperthymic temperament, or like people who are more predisposed to be a little more open and a little more less aversive to the less aversive to risk. That is just one theory, and I am um, and, and this is really not uh, has been uh, there hasn't been replicated or anything like that. Yeah, that's so interesting though, because that also fits with the higher addiction rates, whether we classify it more, but yeah, we could really go down a rabbit hole there. That's really interesting though. Yes, it's very interesting. Yeah. So um, it's also, so this is, I, I talk about the lifetime prevalence, the past year prevalence uh, that gives us a little bit more, a better, a better picture is 2.8% uh, of the population. The prevalence of bipolar disorder is similar in men versus women. Um, so for example, the prevalence of bipolar type 1 in the past year is 1% of the population, and the bipolar type 2 is uh, the rest, um, and the other bipolar disorders is the rest um, um, of, the of the prevalence. And bipolar type 2 is more frequent in, in uh, women versus um, in men. So it doesn't, you know, I think I think it's important to, this is this is the prevalence that, that, um, that, this is, I think, it's important to know this uh, prevalence in the general population. But for uh, those colleagues who work in, in primary care, it's important to know that just because people with bipolar disorder are going to be medically already uh, more sick than the general population, they have more comorbidities, more medical and more, uh, of course, more psychiatric comorbidities, there is going to be a higher prevalence of people with bipolar disorder presenting in regular primary care clinics. I, talking about diagnosis, I was, I wanted to also, um, uh, um, I wanted to also let people know that the prevalence is, um, is going to be higher in primary care settings. And I found this study um, that is from, from a sample of um, uh, it's an epidemiological study done in New York City that showed that approximately 15% of patients who are receiving care for depression in primary care uh, do actually have a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, but they are receiving uh, care for regular depression. So, and this is important because um, 
Uh, if we do use antidepressants in this population, uh, then we are probably uh, gonna make the course worse uh, because antidepressants can switch and can make people uh, predisposed to develop full manic or uh, or hypomanic episodes, but also the use of antidepressants by itself can also make um, the episodes to uh, become uh, what we call mixed uh, features, which is a combination of um, uh, depression and some mania together combined. And we can also make the depression uh, uh, more agitated and they could actually end up having an increased risk for suicide, which has been associated with the, with the presence of uh, um, mixed symptoms. So it's important to know that that um, that all of us struggle diagnosing this this uh, disorder, but we have to pay attention to uh, when we are treating people with depression. We all we are trained in psychiatry. We are trained that every time that we are treating someone for depression, if we want to use antidepressants, we want to make sure that first we inform the patient about the risk of switching to many or hypomania. If that person has already a predisposition for bipolar disorder, it's something that we have to always go through the patient. And we want to make sure that we follow them up to make sure that they are not switching into a different type of polarity of their of their episode. Because it's important to know that uh, most people with bipolar disorder, the what we call the index episode or the episode that they have for the first time in their lives is actually depression. And they... Um, and there, there is a lot of studies too there that have shown that the, the, the diagnosis of bipolar disorder is so difficult that the average length of time to diagnose properly bipolar disorder might be delayed up to, up to 10 years since the onset of a depressive episode. So this is an important thing to keep in mind that this is a very difficult uh, sometimes condition to to diagnose. Yes, that's interesting because obviously it has serious implications. So that would you say that's a problem with primary or not a problem, but that's a cautionary uh, tale to primary care to be really be careful when you're treating depression. It, it is yes, it's a it's a cautionary tale for for all of us for primary mm -hmm. care for specialty care that because uh, we don't have any biomarkers that are gonna tell us who is gonna be predisposed to develop a full mm -hmm. episode of mania or hypomania, which that is already almost the the mark for for bipolar disorder. We don't we don't have that, so we normally have to use some indicators or some predisposition factors, the information of predisposition factors, in order to be more careful. For example, mm -hmm. the the main uh, uh, different studies have shown that the main um, predisposition factor for someone to develop bipolar disorder is actually the presence of bipolar disorder in their families. Mm -hmm. So that's the main predisposing factor. Um, so some of the people uh, over there in 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 Pittsburgh, where I was there for I was there in, for three years, and some of the um, of the people there, they have a a um, nice clinic of bipolar disorder. They have been studying bipolar disorder in children and adolescents and population at risk for developing bipolar disorder to try to answer many of these clinical questions. They have fabulous studies over there. And um, they have, a few years ago, they developed um, kind of like an um, equation that, um, um, that tried to um, 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 predict how many of these people are gonna are gonna uh, develop bipolar disorder when they have some some risk factors? 
So um, it's something that is in their website too. Um, in the um, if you go to the uh, the University of Pittsburgh and and they have a, a an, an equation there that is is being is being built based basically on some um, association studies, some um, epidemiological studies uh, on the information that they have so far about children at risk for developing bipolar disorder. What is the suicide rate? Because doesn't it typically associate pretty high suicide rate? You mentioned that, but, but yeah, so bipolar disorder has the highest suicide rates among all of the psychiatric disorders that are existent. So um, approximately more than there are different studies there, but approximately more than thirty percent of people with bipolar disorder, thirty percent, which is a high, very huge prevalence, will attempt suicide at some point in their lives, and. There are studies that show that up to 10 to 15, and some studies even say 20%, will die by suicide. So one of out of five people with bipolar disorder are going to die by suicide. This is really, really uh, important and very, very uh, scary. And I think that is why it's so important to, to, in, to do research and to investigate this devastating uh, disease that we are talking about. Some of the risk factors for suicide that we want to uh, point out, that we want to really take into account, is uh, that is having a mixed episodes, like I mentioned before. So those episodes that are a combination of of depression and mania, and which is hard to conceptualize because they seem to be antagonic, but it's not the case. You can have both. And and um, Javier, can you describe that? Like, does it look like someone who's depressed and has more irritability and agitation or is it grandiosity with periods of depression like how would you describe a mixed episode yeah that is a lot of that's that is actually a difficult um uh difficult uh uh diagnosis but we uh we define so there is specifiers um now the DSM has specifiers, what they call with mixed features and they have specifiers for both bipolar type one and bipolar type two for both hypomania or mania or in depressive episodes. So you can have any of the of the um of the polarities and have mixed feature features. The main uh pre- the main prevalent mood component is what is going to define the index of the of the of the of the episode. But then for example if you have someone uh, with a major depression, with a major depressive episode that has mixed features, that person is going to have some characteristics like inability to sleep at night, uh, irritability. To they can they can be very uh, restless. They can that's what we call to the what we used to call the agitated depression. So very restless. Um, um, irritable, they might have more impulsivity actually, but also being depressed and defining themselves as, as I am depressed. So um, these are like the characteristics that define mixed features. And that is, uh, I think that is one, so that's one of the of the risk factors for uh, suicide, having a mixed episode is, is kind of like an, an um, psychiatric emergency and uh, just because of the risk of uh, suicide. Another risk factors for that is rapid cycling. So, so these people who are uh, having a lot of switch between the polarities of their episodes, so people who transition fast between mania and depression and vice versa between depression and mania, and they have a lot of these transitions 
um, during the in, a, in during the year. Um, those those are considered rapid cycling, and those are also associated with increased risk for suicide. Of course, prior suicide attempts. This is something that is not new. Normally, we use we say that prior episodes can define uh, the past. The history might define the future. Uh, so prior suicide attempts is a high risk, uh, high risk family history of suicide, having psychotic symptoms is another uh, risk factors. And finally, having anxiety, uh, it has been very much associated with, with um, uh, increased risk of suicide. And that's what led to the DSM-5 committee to include an, uh, a new specifier that it wasn't there before, which is with anxious distress. So now you, and another specifier for depression or for mania or hypomania is also manic episode with anxious distress. And those are people who also have a lot of anxiety at the same time of their mood episode. And that has also been associated with an increased risk of suicide. And finally, uh, having a substance use disorder, of course, uh, has also is going to increase the risk uh, of uh, suicide. What is the most frequent like comorbidities that you see with bipolar? Obviously, we're here because we're talking about substance use disorders, but how common is that? What are some of the other things? So comorbidities, psychiatric comorbidities are pretty high with bipolar disorder. Um, so the main so the main comorbidities are anxiety disorder. So um, there is a study that shows that up to 70% of people with bipolar disorder can also have an, a concomitant anxiety disorder, which is huge. And the other um, uh, big one, too, that is associated with it is substance use disorders, which is what we are going to be talking here. So more than 50% of people with bipolar disorder are also going to struggle with a substance use disorder. And that is excluding nicotine, of course. So these are uh, mainly, we are going to focus mainly in alcohol use disorder, but um, uh, but substance use disorders are, are pretty frequent in bipolar disorder. And that adds to, to the complexity of the diagnosis because many times the intoxication of people uh, who use substances, who use drugs can mimic a lot of these manic symptoms and that are gonna make it more difficult. So someone is intoxicated on in methamphetamine or in um, stimulants, their presentation has, is gonna be almost impossible to differentiate between that and, um, and, and a clear manic episode, um, unless we really know that there has been drugs. And, and to make it even more difficult, you, you, could, you could have both too. So you could use a drug and then have some, um, that, that can trigger a manic episode and it can make it even more difficult then to know uh, what, is the, what is the chicken and what is the egg. Um, and then something very interesting too that we have been getting more and more information for the past uh, two decades is that um, the, the people with bipolar disorder have a lot of medical comorbidities. Some people, some experts in the area, they consider that bipolar disorder is almost a um, metabolic problem. Um, um, so up to 37% of people with bipolar disorder are going to are going to struggle with a met metabolic syndrome like dyslipidemia or um uh or diabetes and um up to 20% of people with bipolar disorder are going to struggle with obesity there is a, also an interesting association with migraine up to 35% of people with bipolar disorder are going to have migraines type 2 diabetes like i was mentioning before up to 14% so what we know is that people with bipolar disorder have a higher increase of mortality. 
mainly expl explained by a higher cardiovascular risk. And we know that the risk of cardiovascular uh, death is higher in people with bipolar disorder, mainly from a combination of um, many factors that we still don't know, but there might be genetic factors, but they're also probably explained by the uh, by smoking and substance use disorders, comorbidity, a poor diet, uh, for low physical activity, but and also antipsychotic use too. That unfortunately, many of the antipsychotics that we use also have predisposed people to develop problems, metabolic problems too. Do you know what the theory is behind the migraine association, Javier? Is it also lifestyle related, or do we not know? What I, can, what I know is that um, uh, regarding the uh, metabolic uh, problem uh, with bipolar disorder. Uh, one of the most replicated associations in like structural neuroimaging in people with bipolar is actually what we call the white matter hyperintensities. So these lesions in the white matter um, are very associated with bipolar disorder, and that has been replicated over and over. That no, it's not that predisposed; it's just associated with that. And a lot of people think that. Uh, and actually, a lot of genetic studies have found some of uh, different loci in genetic risk that is, is shared in, in the, so what we call the genome-wide association studies. Those are studies done in thousands and hundreds of thousands of people. And they try to find what are the uh, different uh, polymorphisms in some genes that can be associated with a disease. And those are very difficult uh, studies, but they have found uh, more than 20 loci that come up and that has been associated with bipolar disorder, and some of these loci are actually in the oxidative um, uh, pathway. So some of these loci are um, are shared, and not only that, also with the uh, are also involved in the secretion of insulin and also in the um, risk for metabolic problems. So there is a connection there between some of the uh, metabolic risks and and the development of bipolar disorder. So. In other ways to say this is that it's truly a medical organic problem that happens in your organs, including your brain. That's how, that's how we have to conceptualize this. Okay. And can you, I don't know if you're going to talk about this in a minute, but talk to us a little bit about child and adolescent diagnosis, because, you know, I mean, obviously you did child and adolescent psychiatry, but how often is this diagnosed in children and adolescents and how often should we look for it? Because I always... I probably am missing it in adolescence because I always think it's a disease that manifests more in adulthood. Yeah, diagnosing bipolar disorder in, uh, so the main age of, um, of onset of bipolar disorder tend to actually be the late teens or beginning of the 20s. So it's a disease that tends to happen more in young people. So, um, I'll, so like I mentioned before by the, the team of Dr. Birmaher there in Pittsburgh, um, they have been trying to, they have been investigating and doing a lot of clinical uh, research uh, to try to see what are those um, um, risks uh, or uh, manifestations of children that come perhaps uh, inform about what are the, the, the risks or what is the risk of diagnosing bipolar disorder. Um, um, of developing the bipolar disorder. And it is very difficult to diagnose bipolar disorder um, in children, um, in adolescent, of course, because um, um, the symptoms are not the same presentations as in adults. So it's, we are talking about a brain that is still developing. And 
children, adolescents um, are going to have different even presentations of what is a mania or what is a depression versus versus uh, older adults. For example, adolescents with depression tend to be more irritable than, than older adults with depression that tend to have more this, uh, what we call this more melancholic type of depression that's less frequent in adolescents. Adolescents tend to also be more reactive to their environment and um, so, and also the, the the classical presentations of mania or hypomania in adolescents can also be very different, and they change too faster. Um, and so, so it's a very difficult area. Uh, this is a very difficult um, um, area of study. But um, what they have what they have seen is that those uh, adolescents that have a diagnosis of um, um, bipolar disorder. Um, um, they developed, that's also very important for us to know that they actually developed a substance use disorder within four years of, um, uh, of getting the diagnosis of bipolar disorder. So these are adolescents who, you, who were diagnosed as having bipolar disorder first, and actually one third of them developed a substance use disorder, mainly alcohol and cannabis use disorder, um, four years uh, later of the index episode. So um, this is very important because um, uh, um, it's important for us to know that there is associations between bipolar disorder, like we know, and substance use disorder. But it's also, that can also be explained that many of these uh, ch children or adolescent, uh, just because you have bipolar disorder, they can also be more impulsive. They can also be more uh, predisposed to uh, experiment with drugs. And, um, and in fact, a study done in 2013 by Dr. Goldstein found that experimentation with alcohol was actually a very pr robust predictor of substance uh, use disorder. And, um, and he even presented, um, um, uh, that was probably the beginning of the equation that I talked before, that having a lifetime prevalence of oppositional defiant disorder, which is something that is a typical disorder for in children, and um, having panic disorder, a family history of substance use disorder, and a low cohesiveness in the family, if you have three or more of these uh, the, of these um, uh, characteristics, the risk of developing a substance use disorder is 50% of these kids will develop a substance use disorder. So wow, that's that's great. We see that that's that's right on. Yeah. Yeah, and there is another study done in 2006 and 16, a case control study, family based of adolescents. Uh, with and without bipolar disorder. And this study was done at baseline and five years later, and the sample was 100 of people with of adolescents with bipolar disorder and 100 without. And they found that almost 50% of the subjects of the people with bipolar disorder develop an alcohol use disorder or a different substance use disorder com compared to control. So that's 50% uh, is, a, is a big, is a, is a high, high prevalence. And I think that that explains the big connection between bipolar disorder and substance use disorder, how early and how soon people with bipolar disorder develop already a substance use disorder. That, so is there any talk in the world of psychiatry about prophylactic uh, prophylaxis for substance use disorder or alcohol use disorder, like the use of naltrexone prophylactically for these kids? Or, or is, that, is it more just screening and monitoring? 
So uh, precisely one of the reasons of these studies done uh, over in Pittsburgh and in, um, in, in adolescents with bipolar disorder is the idea that if you can intervene soon, you can decrease perhaps the incidence or the severity uh, of the developing bipolar disorder and as a consequence to substance use disorder. So they have been doing studies uh, using uh, different different med medications, um, psychotherapy, like family-focused psychotherapy, and they have tried and they have found that these children who already are treated early on, they have a, a better better uh, um, long-term prognosis of bipolar disorder versus the um, uh, versus other children. At least there are different indicators and they have been able to show that they have a better or more benign course on, on the bipolar disorder. Thank you. That's really fascinating. This chicken and the egg, like does the substance use cause the bipolar? Does the bipolar cause the substance use? Is it more complex than that? And where where does this come from? What is what are where are they talking about this in the neurobiology? So um, we, so it's still uh, of course these are all of these are hypotheses and we don't know exactly why is this. So the classical descriptions of the uh, dual diagnosis, how they call the comorbidities between bipolar disorder and substance use disorder, the classical descriptions or hypotheses were first that some of the symptoms of bipolar disorder, especially in mania, like impulsivity and increased risk of impulsivity yeah. or sensation seeking, like uh, almost a manic episode is already uh, can be characterized by 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 this and uh, making poor decisions. Um, these symptoms of bipolar disorder can already lead to an increased use of drugs. Um, but there is also another classical explanation, which is the self-medication hypothesis, that a lot of these problems that people with bipolar disorder struggle with, like insomnia, depression, like I mentioned, anxiety, like I mentioned before, uh, they end up using drugs, especially more sedatives or alcohol uses or alcohol as a way to try to treat and feel better. So that's what they call the self-medication uh, hypothesis. Mm -hmm. um, now, but things are really more, uh, I think things are more difficult than that because we are talking about uh, the disorders that, that they share uh, common risk factors, developmental risk factors, both of them, substance use disorder and bipolar disorder, has been associated with maltreatment, uh, ab uh, children uh, abuse in in in, in adolescents and um, in in uh, in uh, in children. Uh, so physical uh, abuse, sexual abuse, is associated with the develop development of bipolar disorder and 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 substance use disorder too. Wow. So they share that they like I mentioned before they they share genetic genes too. So there is a poly is a polygene uh, disorder, and some of the re of the genes are also associated with substance use disorders, or at least the different small contributors of genes. Um, there is also um, some um, neurocircuitry or biochemical problems too. So if you think about the, the medications that we use to treat a manic episode are, are mainly, are, are mostly dopamine, dopamine blockers. So a manic episode, you are going to be using, uh, you can use uh, mood stabilizers or you can use antipsychotics, uh, but, if it, but it has been shown that when someone is in a manic episode, there is an excess of dopamine among different other uh, mm -hmm. bi biochemical compounds in the brain that can predispose uh, people to, that can 
be fueling the the development of the development of uh, many psychosis and, and and dopamine and substance use disorders are also there very much linked to so there is a lot of common pathways uh, that can explain why bipolar disorder is associated with uh, with substance use disorder and, I think uh, yeah, I love that where you talk about cuz we see so much as heads back to trauma and it mm -hmm. just seems really interesting is that activating some pathway is activating a gene in someone who's maybe predisposed. Is exactly. that, that mm -hmm. seems to be a very common theme we exactly. keep hearing over and over again. Yeah, yeah. So, so having early trauma um, is going to have an influence in the genes that you are going to be expressing. So those are what we call the epigenetic uh, yes. changes. And those epigenetic changes are sometimes lifelong and are going to be responsible that you are going to be expressing some genes. So if you are somehow predisposed to develop a bipolar disorder in this case, and you develop, but you are exposed to trauma early on during your life, you might be more predisposed to, to obviously um, uh, ignite the fire and, and develop a, a full-blown bipolar disorder. And when we talk about epigenetic risk, it's the same with drugs. Drugs are going to produce epigenetic changes in your brain so the use of drugs are, is a stressful phenomenon for your brain, and you might end up expressing those genes that you did not want to express. So if you are already predisposed to have bipolar disorder, you might end up full, having a full manic episode because of the concomitant use of drugs. That's fascinating. And Thank you. There is also a concept in bipolar disorder that they call the uh, neuroprogression. So um, in medical school, um, I was I remember... I remember uh, learning that uh, one of the phenomena that explains uh, perhaps bipolar disorder and the potential benefits of mood stabilizers is a, is a kindling phenomena in the same way that yeah. you have that with epilepsy. So yeah. the, the more number of mood episodes that you have, the more and more um, uh, risk that you have to develop another one. So um, uh, that kindling phenomena uh, uh, people are now talking instead of neuroprogression, which is um, how um, having a manic episode or having a depressive episode, uh, if we talk about a depressive episode, having depression has been associated with changes in volumetric changes in your hippocampus. So there is brain changes. It's, it's not good for your brain to have a, an untreated depression. Same thing with an untreated, same thing with mania too that can be neurotoxic. So the concept of neuroprogression is that uh, people uh, who have bipolar disorder during their lifetime, if they are not treating it or they have a lot of uh, mood symptoms, they might be more and more sensitized to have further de uh, developing symptoms. And um, But things are also more complicated too, because what I mentioned before about these um, um, oxidative changes of people's bodies too, it might be too that the older that people get, the more changes, oxidative changes, changes in the white matter, they are the, they are they are suffering from that, and they might also be predisposed to have a different presentations of manic, mm. uh, of manic or or depression too. So, and then there is also these people too uh, who during the early onset of the neurodegenerative disorder, like classical dementia, they might start to develop symptoms of mania or depression when they never had those symptoms before too. So this is what they we call about the neuroprogression and how it's, um, uh, it's complicated. And same thing with trauma, same thing with uh, substance use too. Uh, it it's not the first time that someone, for example, with PTSD, 
uh, and they have a control of the PTSD. When they are getting older, they start to have some neurodegenerative changes in their brain. They start to have higher intensity in the PTSD symptoms that they never had before. So this is all of what I am trying to uh, refer to when I am talking about the neuroprogression. And um, some, some groups out there have tried to um, develop a, a classification system of um, uh, what they call the clinical stages of bipolar disorder, trying to emulate this uh, beautiful um, effort done in cancer research with the TNM system, the tumor, the presence of lymphatic nodes uh, affected and metastasis. Um, so in this beautiful research done uh, in, in, uh, in oncology, they have also tried to divide uh, the different levels of severity of people uh, to try to predict maybe different courses of bipolar disorders. And there, there are different groups out there who have developed a classification of what is bipolar and depending on the different stages, if it's early stage, if it's more uh, predisposition, or if it's more a full development and even neurodegeneration or neuroprogression of bipolar disorder. That's really amazing. I've never heard that. And that just makes so much sense. Do you know if there's um, if oxidative stress that's similar with an acute traumatic event, like people are sub-threshold in terms of manifesting, or maybe they've had depressive events and they have a very traumatic event later on, if that just kind of kicks them over into full-blown, you know, polarity. Have you seen that or have you heard about that in the studies? So, okay, so what, I, what are a couple of things? One is that um, this belongs more to the area of neuropsychiatry, but I have uh, seen people who have strokes in, the, in different areas of the brain and they can develop a full manic episode after having a strokes in different areas. And, and that's more for the neuropsychiatry part. But what you are mentioning, Paula, is more about a big load of stress <clears throat> that someone suffers with that can um, um, predispose to the development or to an index episode of something. And yes, I have seen, if you, if you talk to the patients, uh, many of them will tell you that the past, before the, the full development of the mania or the depressive episode, they were dealing with a lot of stress in their lives too. And we also see that actually a stress by itself can predispose people to have um, uh, changes in their, um, in their um, to, to have uh, predisposed people to the, to the development um, of depression or mania too, by itself too. Even if people who are maintained and they are euthymic and they are using medications for this and they have a good period, then something happens, some major stress event happens like the death of a family member, some major serious change in your uh, in the role of your life, um, uh, retirement, a major change in jobs or like going and starting a new job or something like that can actually predispose someone to who has been stable to the to to develop um, uh, one of these um, 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 affective or um, mood disorders too uh, in someone who is already predisposed. So definitely yes, and there is also something very interesting that link uh, substance use and bipolar disorder, um, which is what we call the uh, chronotypes, which to me is fascinating. And that is um, uh, we know that uh, what we call an evening or a late chronotype, which is people who tend to uh, be more productive at the end of the day, who go to bed later, um, who have more struggle waking up early and, and they are more tired in the morning. That has been associated with a lot of changes in cortisol. With a, so there has been a lot of studies there. Those people have uh, uh, higher 
predisposition to develop bipolar disorder. And there is also, are, uh, if you, if, when you, um, before the full development of the addiction, we, we see that, especially with some substances, like m mainly alcohol use disorder, that people do uh, drink alcohol at some times during the day. It's not a random phenomena. Some people tend to drink more at the end of the day. Some people tend to drink more at the beginning of the day. So uh, that has been linked to, to these chronotypes that I am talking about. So there is definitely some links between substance use and, and um, bipolar disorder that are farther than uh, the classical hypothesis too. So there might be some um, um, uh, circadian variations too that might predispose, that might associate people uh, with substance use disorders and bipolar disorder. That's so fascinating. Another important part too, that uh, regarding these chronotypes uh, of people with bipolar too, and this is also, uh, that has been also been studied in people who suffer from jet lag. So um, mm -hmm. uh, people who go to different areas um, of the of the planet, right? In in um, so uh, going um, traveling to the east, um, um, normally um, this uh, it produces a natural a natural um, um, uh, advanced phase. So uh, what is going to happen is that that has been associated with an increased risk of uh, mania. However, traveling to the west uh, parts of the world, you are gonna have a, a delay, a, a delayed phase, and um, oh, naturally, right, because you are changing to different, and that has been associated with depression. So it's uh, so there is that is also this connection between the circadian rhythms and the developing of um, uh, of bipolar disorder. And we know too that normally the fall and the winter is risk factors for developing depression, and that is being associated with the photo period and the and the length of the day and the number of hours uh, of having natural light. However, the spring and the summer have been most associated with uh, the onset of manic episodes. We see that in psychiatry in the emergency rooms, than uh, people with manic episodes, and in the inpatient psychiatric units tend to have more admissions during the fall, during the during the spring and the summer because of the changes in the photo period too. That makes so much sense. Like just paying attention, we watch these patterns in our patients. Yeah, it's very interesting because that has been associated with changes in what we call the clock clock genes. So all of the all of the uh, all of the cells that we have in our bodies, even different organs, a lot of their uh, uh, there is a lot of gen there is a tight control of genetic expression, and uh, these clock genes are uh, in charge of expressing or repressing many of these uh, other genes. Um, so um, so so that, that, that there could be that these changes in the photo period are also going to be responsible of, of changes too in your whole body. So it's not only uh, in your brain, but all of the uh, regulation by cortisol, the, the HPA, uh, the hypothalamic pituitary axis, and all of that, that are very well regulated by the suprachiasmatic nucleus, that can also be uh, uh, repressing or expressing genes in different but in different organs of of uh, your body too. Wow! Wow! Roberts <laughs> is like wow. So tell us what it means in terms of treatment, or specifically for our patients with alcohol use disorder or substance use disorder, in terms of our approach, our approach to treating them. How can we maximize 
their quality of life? How can we reduce suicide? Like, what do you know from the studies and how do we move forward as clinicians to make sure we take the best care of our patients? So I think that one of the main messages here is that bipolar disorder is uh, one of the disorders where the gold standard is psychopharmacological treatment. So um, there are other disorders in psychiatry like uh, anxiety disorders, uh, PTSD, even major depressive disorder, uh, where antidepressant use and psychotherapy have shown equal efficacy. And, and, and some people do better in psychopharmacological approach. Some people do better in psychotherapeutic approaches. Some people get benefit from both. But bipolar disorder is one of these disorders where psychopharmacological treatment is the gold standard. So it's important that people receive uh, medication for that. And that doesn't mean that there is no others that there are not, they don't get benefit from psychotherapy. So they do. And there have been different psychotherapeutic approaches, like the family-focused therapy has been effective to decrease <clears throat> that I mentioned before, that has been done in adolescents and has been already uh, demonstrated that, that that benefits adolescents with bipolar disorder. But um, there is also um, uh, psychoeducation and cognitive behavioral therapy that has been proven beneficial in people with bipolar disorder. And um, in the um, in this case, um, there is also an um, 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 interpersonal and social rhythm therapy that was developed in, in Pittsburgh too, uh, that, that tries to uh, link all of the um, all of the activities that you do through the day, trying to control what they call the the Z, the Z givers or or um, uh, these major events that that control your day. So you, you it's kind of like a behavioral approach. Try to make sure that you go to bed at the same time, that you wake up in the morning at the same time, and that you are more or less doing the same activities. So all of these psychotherapeutic approaches are beneficial, and that has been proven. However, only psychotherapy approaches are not enough to have a proper control and treatment of bipolar disorder. So that's the first, the first message. The second message is that the best outcomes in bipolar disorder, because I mentioned before, that is a multi-organ problem. So the best approaches is what they call the collaborative care. So the best things happen when there is a good integration between primary care and specialty care, once again. So that is, has been proven because, like I said, these people have so many other comorbidities that is going to be important to take care of. So that's another another important point is that it's a good collaborative. And there is studies showing that the prognosis of, uh, of, of for follow-up of people having an integrative care, they do better than people who are only being treated in specialty care or people who are only being treated in primary care. Yeah. Um, I mean, that makes so much sense, right? To have like a medical home with this integrated, collaborative, or just all integrated. Like that's kind of the model SAMHSA is moving towards are these integrated medical homes where people get all their care in a very coordinated fashion. It makes sense that it has the best outcomes. Yes, it it totally, it totally. So so one of these uh, classical messages that we learn uh, when we are young uh, from that, that that says men sana incorpore sano is actually that you have to have a, a, a good, a healthy body in order to have a healthy mind. You cannot have a healthy mind if your body is not healthy too. So it's, it's basically this uh, this connection between mind and body that that hopefully I think we are getting more and more better there um, than the classical, uh, uh, you know, you have a mental problem and you deal with mental problems and no it's, it's the whole it's the same body and we have to take care of the whole body 
So I wanted to talk briefly about uh, pharmacological approaches, and um, and I just wanted to mention that um, normally uh, in the case of uh, of bipolar disorder and and uh, maybe I'm going to be mentioning a little bit more between bipolar disorder and alcohol use disorder because that's where it has there has been more research done, and. Um, Normally, the classical approaches has been investigating a medication used in bipolar disorder to see if there is any help in um, in alcohol outcomes. So, use of lithium valproate of quetiapine has been done, and there has been some studies seeing if they improve, if they have better outcomes in in alcohol use disorder. There has also been studies uh, about using a medication used in alcohol use disorder as an add-on for bipolar disorder. So of course, naltrexone and acamprosate. So uh, what I first wanted to mention is that uh, despite the, the comorbidity that I mentioned before between substance use disorder and bipolar disorder, the studies that have been done are, are already old and there are not a lot of studies out there. So remember that I mentioned that up to uh, 40% of people with bipolar disorder might also be um, suffering from, um, 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 from um, alcohol use disorder. So um, despite that, this, there, has, there are only a few studies. So there is only one study, which is alarming, only one study done in 2005 where they used valproate when adding to regular treatment with lithium in, in 59 patients with bipolar type 1 and alcohol use disorder, and they did not see any difference in manic or depressive symptoms. However, they saw that people taking valproate had less proportion of heavy drinking days and less drinks per heavy drinking days compared with people who were, not, who were getting placebo but not getting valproate. So, um, and then they also show that there was a correlation between the valproate serum levels and the number of drinks per day too. So that was a very interesting study. But like I said, this is a 24 week good uh, randomized study only done in 59 patients back in 2005. And that's it. And then there is another study. There are three studies <coughs> done in, uh, using this time quetiapine, three different studies. One is one, more than 100 outpatients with, with bipolar type 1 or 2. Uh, there is another multicenter study done in 360 patients with bipolar type 1 and alcohol use disorder. There is also another one with 90 patients. And using quetiapine um, and see um, if that will make any difference in their alcohol outcome. In this case, they did not see any difference in their alcohol outcome. They saw that they were doing better from the mood standpoint, but not from the alcohol standpoint, which, you know, it's interesting because uh, if we tend to, like, that goes a little bit against this self-medication hypothesis, right? Like, they are uh, doing better from the mood standpoint. However, they are not doing better from the alcohol standpoint when you will say, okay, they should also be doing better from the alcohol standpoint. So that didn't prove anything. I mean, that didn't prove that, that um, um, self-medication hypothesis. And um, and then there is really um, uh, only one study, uh, important study, important with 50 patients in the case of naltrexone done in, in alcohol use disorder. And uh, there's only 50% um, people, they were taking valproate, lithium, or antipsychotics, and they used naltrexone versus placebo. And they were also taking, they were also on CBT. And um, 
They only 26 people completed treatment. They didn't see any different changes in any drinking days. But like I said, only 26, 26 patients completed the treatment. So not very much, a lot of them. They only saw like a, a significant trend for better alcohol outcomes in people who take naltrexone, but they didn't see really a, a significant uh, and, and a statistical difference. And there is other very small to open label studies. And then there was done by Smini Petrakis back in 2005, a large VA-based study in more than 200 patients with uh, different types of axis one disorders and alcohol use disorder. They showed an naltrexone or disulfiram. They were safe. They were tolerated. They were effective for craving reduction in this population, but they did not provide any information about any of the specific axis one disorders. And, and that's pretty much everything. All of the research that has been done of bipolar disorder and alcohol use disorder. So to me, this is pretty, pretty um, 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 how to describe this, but pretty um, sad that there is really no more. <laughs> yeah. And so I think that speaks about the complexity of recruiting people, right, with, uh, with this. But there is also uh, that I speak to about uh, the need for probably public agencies' investment um, in research for people with bipolar disorder. And why I say that is because uh, one of the two most effective treatments that we have for bipolar disorder, mood stabilizers, includes lithium and valproate acid. They're very cheap. So pharmaceutical companies are not going to be paying for a study like this because it's not profitable for them. So this, this speaks about the need to have public agencies investing in, in doing large clinical trials to see what is the best treatment that, that our patients uh, deserve and need. Very good. So I have a I question about the use of lithium, the safety profile of lithium in patients with active alcohol use disorder. How comfortable do you feel with people on lithium when they have both disorders, considering people may run the risk of lactic acidosis, you know, and dehydration, do you feel like the benefit exceeds the risk that you take it as a clinical, you know, decision based, you know, patient by patient? What What's your general approach? So I think this is an excellent question, Paula. And I think that it speaks about this um, uh, multidisciplinary and, col and collaborative treatment that I am mentioning before. Uh, people uh, with uh, bipolar disorder and alcohol use disorder in this case are going to need more frequently to be hospitalized for medical management of withdrawal symptoms and for also psychiatric decompensations. So these are people who are more severe. We're talking about a serious mental illness. We're going to talk about people that need that require higher intensive uh, modalities of treatment. So um, I think that, of course, if we, if I think it's going to be very difficult if someone is actively using a lot of alcohol and they are uh, decompensated in that regards, it's probably going to be very difficult. Many things. It's going to be very difficult to have them taking their medications, to follow up with uh, appointments, to make sure that they go and get uh, blood levels of lithium if they have therapeutic levels or not. Then the incidence of side effects, like you mentioned, Paula, is going to be way higher. To possibilities of the hydration, uh, tremors, many things. So, so I think that uh, um, definitely is going to require um, um, multidisciplinary treatment. So it's not a it's a one by one individual decision what to do or not. So I think that the reality 
normally shows that or teaches us that these patients, unfortunately, end up not taking their medications if they are actively mm-hmm. using drugs too. Because sure. really, uh, that's really much uh, out of control once they are actively using drugs. We see that more often than not, that they stop using using their medications. Mm-hmm. But, sure. um, but I think that it may be in a, in a less, probably in, a, in, in someone with an alcohol use disorder that is maybe... Uh, better control, a moderate range that they are more like actively drinking, but not to the excess that they need to be hospitalized for that. That's then a different question. And that's probably a case that perhaps some of these treatments are actually protecting them from a full development, mm-hmm. a full destabilization of their bipolar and their alcohol use disorder too. Right. Okay. And so the same, I'm assuming the same goes for the use of valproic acid for people who have hepatic impairment as we commonly see with people with alcohol use disorder, do you have a threshold where you do not use valproic acid because of their alcohol-related um, liver disease? Yeah. Or I again, is the benefit just exceed the risk? Well, I think that unless the history tells us that uh, this patient, particularly in front of you, has had clear decompensations when they stop taking the valproic, unless you have something like that, uh, I normally use the same um, uh, guidance that I will use with the use of naltrexone. So someone uh, with uh, when the LFTs is higher than five times normal, that's when I, I am a little scared of at least starting valproate on them. I think that if the risk and the benefit after a careful evaluation, if the, if the patient is going to be or their families are going to be making sure that the patient is going to be having follow-up for, for LFTs, then there may be something that it can be done. But I think that it needs to be very much individualized with a good risk-benefit discussion. Okay, one more thing about valproic acid. Do you prescribe it to women of childbearing age with alcohol use disorder when you see the benefit would be really high as long as they're on contraception? What if they refuse contraception? Do you just not even go there? What's your clinical approach with this population? That is an excellent question. I work at the VA, so I, I don't, um, I'm, I'm not the expert in uh, in women, um, pregnant women or women population, but that is definitely a, a very, very important discussion in general, contraception and the risks and the benefits of using, uh, of course, valproate is the most teratogenic uh, medication that we have in bipolar disorder that has been proven. There is, that's no discussion there. And, um, and I think that is very important to, uh, uh, have a good conversation, and and I think the other question is what happens if if a woman gets pregnant at the same time that they are taking uh, valproate. That's when I will pro- I will definitely need to involve um, uh, the OBGYN here on board and have a, a good discussion if uh, having massive doses of folic acid is going to make a difference or not, and good OBGYN follow up if that is going to make a good difference or not. So. Uh, so that's a very individualized discussion, and and I think that that really we can also use other agents too and discontinue valproate. Um, so I think that is always uh, that's the art of doing this that we have to really individualize who are in front of us. Great, Javier. Will you talk at the end about um, minoritized groups? I know that you had in a previous talk um, addressed this in in regards to alcohol use disorder and bipolar disorder and um, just talk to us about the disparities in treatment or success rates or 
anything that we know about uh, groups that we typically have not done robust research on and have poor access to care. That's good. Excellent. I, I like this topic too very much. Um, there is, um, I think the main, the first question is that there is really no research done in bipolar disorder and alcohol use disorder comorbidity. So if the, if the research is already poor in the general population in minorities or underrepresented minorities, the research is even not, is basically non-existent. And, and I'm going to give you a couple of examples just to show how important this is. Uh, there is a, a study done in 2020 about, uh, about uh, using a, a population of um, a Latino population in Los Angeles County. And um, they had, I think this, part, this study was done in 87 participants with severe mental illness in a public mental health clinic over there, and they uh, they saw actually that there was an aversion to use medications for alcohol use disorder because the idea is that uh, the a medication like naltrexone or acamprosate or tisulfiram is going to interfere with your development of like self control. So they will say you don't need you are really using something to make it easier, but your real uh, uh, locus of control is going to come from you. So you should not use medications and they were medication aversive for that. So having, having the, um, um, cultural, um, aspect is very important. And I'm going to give you a, a couple of examples of two different minoritized population. So one of them, um, is in, um, black Americans and, um, it's important to know that the, that the epidemiological studies have not seen any difference in the prevalence of um, uh, bipolar disorder in different uh, minoritized uh, groups. Um, however, um, the African-American population uh, had, there is a study done in 2003, and they, and they saw that the uh, African-American uh, people were being prescribed antipsychotics at a higher rate compared to Caucasian population. Um, I am not sure where is this um, coming from, but I suspect that it has to do with the difficulties with uh, diagnosis too. So we already are having difficulties. I think that needing to have a good cultural background is very important. So um, there is a study done in the early 2000s <clears throat> that showed that African-American population uh, compared with Caucasian population had four times more chances to receive a diagnosis of schizophrenia versus bipolar disorder in the emergency room. So I think uh, these are um, all of these um, um, systematic problems that we have to deal with, with uh, and, and that would leads to a lot of historical mistrust of uh, these uh, uh, of the black population in the American system uh, based on institutional racism and discrimination and poverty. I think this is something that we have to take uh, really, really pay attention. We also have uh, data from the NIDA clinical trials network done by, uh, by NIDA, of course, in a Hispanic and Latino population over the past 20, 20 years that have shown that uh, Latino population have um, um, endorsed difficulty. They have difficulties recruiting this population because of having problems with insurance, having problems with travel time to get, receive substance use disorder treatment, geographical inaccessibility, citizenship status, the level of acculturation, being, uh, being fearful of, uh, uh, of the immigration status or not. And um, so it has been shown that Latino population have less, is less likely to complete substance use treatment, underutilized treatment, and actually have a lack of treatment efficacy in many studies. So 
So these studies show that the the sociological factors are can actually be more powerful and um and inform us more about the prognosis of a disease than even the pure bio biological factors. So it's something that we really need to take into account if we really want to be able to treat any any person who comes. That's interesting and it's devastating actually, isn't it, that we that we lack this knowledge and this and this ability to take care of people equitably. Absolutely. Anything else that we need to know how we can better treat patients, recognize that we haven't covered? No, I think I think that that what I mentioned before about having a good multidisciplinary team is very important and have good collaboration among different disciplines is going to be the key to um, uh, to have good treatment outcomes for yeah. patients. And and I think that in my experience, too, in outpatient uh, working uh I think that applies to any area in psychiatry, but particularly substance use disorder and bipolar disorder based on the family consequences. I think that having a good uh, relationship with uh, with the caregivers is going to be very important because they can ultimately inform you of how stable is their family, um, of how uh, what are the challenges that they are facing. We have to take into account that these uh, problems affect not only to the patients, but also to their families, other caregivers. So we have to, uh, to, to be an ally for everyone and work in, in also family in a, from a family standpoint. That is, so, that is such sage advice. That's so helpful. Mm -hmm. Thank you. It has been our pleasure to have you again. Thank you so much, Dr. Ballester. Mm -hmm. And this has been such an informative and much needed episode that helps all of us. Have, thank you so much and have a good night. Thank you. Thanks, Javier. Thank you. Bye-bye. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.